The scripture reading this morning begins with John chapter 3, verse 22. John 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and asked him and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is uh, perhaps the most remarkable, significant, impactful, well-known chapter, whatever you want to call it, in all of Scripture. It has left a massive legacy and influence, primarily from what we've seen in the last few weeks, a description, a summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at what, is it, what does a life look like that has been impacted by, shaped by, that same gospel. What does that life look like? We will see an example of that in John the Baptist. And while you're turning there, I want to make you aware of uh, one other thing that's going on this summer. I, uh, 
did not wear my pirate costume today, but uh, you will see that at VBS, I take it. And um, thankful for Jill and Bethany and their leadership there. Really excited for that week coming up this summer. Uh, before that week, uh, there, there's a few other things that are happening this summer that I want to make you aware of, just it, it, as it pertains to our Wednesday night ministries. Uh, some of you have been involved with this over the course of the past school year, as we have met on Wednesday nights, both for the, the kids and the adults, and we've uh, covered a number of different topics that I trust have been very beneficial. And we're kind of on a summer hiatus, a pause for the summer, uh, but we're going to spend three different evenings this summer uh, looking at three very important topics for us as it pertains to our discipleship. And this Wednesday, I want to invite you to join us. Uh, we're calling this Embodied. Um, and what this is, is a look at uh, what does it mean that God created, what, 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 how did God create us and how do our bodies fit into that? There's a lot of misunderstanding these days about what it means to be human and what God's design is for our bodies. There's a lot of confusion about that. We're going to talk about that on Wednesday night, what his design is. And we're also going to talk on Wednesday night about some of the things that maybe lie underneath the surface of that, but that have redefined what it means to be human in some radical ways that perhaps we're not aware of, but that feed into what's going on in our day and age. So I want to invite you to join us at 6.30 on Wednesday evening, this upcoming week in the Real Life Center I trust it'll be very beneficial. And I'm thankful that God gave us his word to help us sort through uh, some of the confusion that goes on in our day and age, as it has been in any day and age. There has always been confusion over what it looks like to truly live as a human being. There's always been confusion about how to, how to, how to walk in these ways. And the Lord has given us wisdom on this. He has, he's not left us wandering aimless on our own. And so as we come to his word, it is appropriate for us to have a posture of humility where we submit ourselves to him. We, we kind of lay ourselves down before his feet and say, okay, Lord, what, what do you say? I'll trust that. What do you say, Lord? I'll follow that. And really, that posture of humility spreads out to the entirety of the Christian life as we approach his word and as we live in every other area of our lives, we are to live with humility. You know, many people have suggested that pride is what lies behind all sin. And if that's the case, then it might well be said that humility is one of the radically defining characteristics of a Christian. What does it look like to live as a Christian? Well, essential to that is to live with humility. And how does that come about? We will see in our text today an example of John the Baptist as he models for us what it looks like to live with humility. A different John, who is also a preacher, Jonathan Edwards, said this about humility and pride. The first and the worst cause of errors that abound in our day and age is spiritual pride. This is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit that darkens the mind and misleads the judgment. Pride is the main handle by which he has a hold of Christian persons and the chief source of all the mischief he introduces that clogs and hinders the work of God. Spiritual pride is the main spring, or at least the main support, of all other errors. And until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. So what lies behind true humility? How do we bring that about in our lives? And the irony of it is that you will not get more humble by trying harder to be more humble but only by looking to the Lord 
Jesus. We see an example of this in John the Baptist. After we've seen the gospel the last few weeks in the beginning of John chapter 3, now we shift and we're, we're, we're still rooted in the gospel, but seeing what does that look like played out in our lives? How does that shape the way that we live? And it must include humility. Let's get the context. Verse 22 of John chapter 3. After this, so after his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, now pause there, say John has not yet been put in prison, is, is telling you a couple of things. First of all, it's telling you that what Jesus is doing here in the first three chapters of John's gospel is a prelude to what we find in the other gospel accounts, because the other gospels tell us Jesus started this ministry after John was put in prison. So John's telling you, hey, guess what? He's doing some things before that too. But it also foreshadows what's going to happen to John the Baptist. This guy has been a central figure in the first three chapters of John's gospel. We have seen him come up over and over again several different times. John the Baptist shows up. He's been a pivotal focus here, and he fades away after this. In fact, after this, we don't hear about him in John's gospel, but we do know what happens. See, John the Baptist was preaching the gospel, and included in that, he was preaching about sexual ethics as it pertained to how to rightly follow the Lord. And so he said, to, so Herod, the king, took uh, his brother's wife and started sleeping with her. And John said, you shouldn't do that. So they threw him in prison for it. And he wound up being executed in prison. He never made it out alive. And so this great preacher, John the Baptist, shortly after our encounter here in the text that we see this morning, will fade into the background as he is thrown in prison and he dies there. This is a man who practices what he preaches, in other words. We will see him confess his last words we read in John's gospel. He must increase, but I must decrease. And he models that with his life. See, what happens, the rest of the gospel account of John, which is written by a different John, what happens is that John the Baptist drops off the scene. He fades into the background, and Jesus Christ alone is center stage. John's life models for us what he's saying here in our text. It gives more weight to it. And I think that's why Jesus... Elsewhere, Matthew tells us, Jesus said, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And I think our text today gives us a clue as to why that is. No one greater than John. Why? Because John is humble enough to say, Lord, it's all about you, not me. So what does true greatness look like? Well, we, we define it in so many different ways, but the world's definition of what true greatness looks like is radically different than the Lord's definition of what true greatness looks like. The Lord says, well, you want to be truly great? Live in humility before me. Saying it's all about you, Lord, not me. That's what true greatness looks like. That's what John the Baptist models for us. And all of this is prompted by a debate that's happening. See, chapter 4 tells us that Jesus himself was not the one doing the baptizing, so he wasn't dunking them underwater, but he was kind of supervising the baptisms that are happening. So it's still nonetheless traced back to Jesus. And some people had some issue with that. So verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So you say, okay, wait, wait. They're, they're arguing about purification. See, it says a discussion arose. And that's like when you and your spouse are having an argument, but you don't want other people to know you're having an argument. So you say, we're just having a conversation. That's what's happening here. The word here is actually dispute or debate. They're, they're debating something. They're disputing something. And so what, what's happening is they're disputing purification. So you have a, a Jewish person who's, who's arguing as John's disciples. Now, 
We don't exactly know why this is the debate that prompts this, because that's not what John really responds to. John doesn't respond about purification. He responds by contrasting himself with Jesus. But I think it's actually related, because the, the, the Jews would say, well, how does purification come? It comes by following the ritual cleansings of the law. John's baptisms were a way of, of representing cleansing that comes through repentance of sins. And John, I think, looks at him and says, guys, both of those things are foreshadowing and find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus who cleanses his people, washes them by water and spirit. It's pointing to him. All, all this that you're discussing, all this that you're debating, it's all really pointing to Jesus. So let me tell you about that guy. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me point you to him. And it's all prompted by the problem they bring to John. Here's verse 26. This is, this is the, now we come to see this, the central problem that's occupying the minds of his disciples, this. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Here's the problem that John's disciples have. Hey, John, they're going to Jesus and not you. Hey, John, that guy, Jesus, you've talked about, that young hotshot that's just kind of this, this just come onto the scene recently, guess what? He's baptizing across the river, and people are leaving you and going to him. What are we going to do about this? See, John has a brand problem. People are leaving him and going to Jesus. And his disciples come to him, and his disciples say, hey, rabbi, teacher, we've been impacted by your ministry. You, you, maybe you even baptized us. What are we going to do to keep the people from leaving you? Let's rebrand this thing and appeal to this audience. But John does not take the bait. But first, I want you to notice that this is a universal question that you and I all face on a daily basis. Because the question that they bring to him is really about this. What do you do when other people get more praise than you do? What do you do when other people receive more attention than you receive? What do you do when other people have more success than you're having? How do you respond in those moments? We might phrase it like this. What do you do when the temptation to compare and to compete with other people arises? What do you do then? It's a real practical question because all of us face that on a daily basis. Face the, the temptation to compare ourselves with other people. You say, okay, I want to figure out, okay, who am I doing better than and who am I doing worse than? And you know, you might, okay, you might say, okay, I'm, I'm genuinely happy when other people succeed as long as they don't succeed more than I do. I'm genuinely happy when someone gets paid at work as long as they're not making more money than I am. I'm genuinely happy when that person gets that promotion as long as it's not that same job I was looking for. All of a sudden, we're tempted to compare with other people, to, to kind of measure ourselves in comparison to them. I need to get more attention than they do. I need to get more likes on social media than they get. And, and all this factors into a, a temptation to compete with other people, to try to be better. And listen, the fact that this shows up in the context of baptisms is a clear indication that pastors, those who serve in ministry in whatever way, are not exempt from these pitfalls. See, one of the most dangerous pitfalls and temptations that can come from anywhere you're serving in ministry is this, whether you're a pastor, a grace group leader, Sunday school teacher, serve anywhere else, is to compare with other people and to compete with them. They say, well, what happens, pastor, when other people are going, when more people are going to that other church down the road than yours? What happens, grace group leader, 
when that other person in your group seems to be a better teacher than you are? What happens, ministry leader, when someone starts serving in a different ministry when you need help in your own? There's a temptation to view our ministries, to view these things as competing with each other and to compare it. And, and, and you never win by playing the comparison game. Because either you find, oh, I'm, I'm doing better than so-and-so, and so now I get prideful and boast and say, look how great I am. Or you realize I'm doing worse than so-and-so, and then you fall into despair and say, well, I must be a miserable failure. It doesn't lead anywhere good, and yet where it often leads you to is to compete. To say, I, I've got to try my best to one-up them. But comparison and competition, they will rob you of joy in serving. If you leave them unchecked, that desperation for praise and for success will hold more sway over your heart than anything else, even the Lord and his word. So to be truly humble means that you are freed from envy and jealousy. You are freed from the celebrating other people's failures and resenting other people's successes, and you can instead celebrate with them where they're at. It seems rather impossible for us, though, because isn't this temptation lurking within each one of our hearts? Because we all want to be praised. We all want success. We all want to be great. And so we would have the same problem that John's followers are having in, in this text. We would have the exact same problem. We would say, oh, guess what? They are leaving you and going over here to this other person. John, you are baptizing you here. This other guy's taking up baptisms across the river. People are going to him. What do we do about that? You and I would have the exact same problem as his followers do. See, Jesus has the more hip worship service. He's more popular, more trendy. He doesn't dress weird like John the Baptist dresses. John eats locusts. Jesus gives the best wine. He said, I'm team Jesus all the way, right? I mean, it's like, okay, Jesus, Jesus' ministry seems to be taking off and John's ministry seems to be declining. And so we would think the same thing his followers think. Hey, you know, what can we do to fix this? What can we do to kind of um, make ourselves look a little bit better, make our brand look great so that we can compete with that guy over the river and make sure our ministry is thriving like his? But John's response to that is radically different. John's response is basically... Praise God that his ministry is growing. It's not about me. Now that takes radical humility. And the humility that John exhibits does not come by just saying, I'm going to try harder to be humble today. I'm going to wake up today and say, I'm just going to be humble. John's humility is built upon several truths that he has come to learn deep in his heart. And because he knows this, because he believes this, because he roots his life upon it, it produces in him and in his life humility. So what are these truths that he stakes his ground in and say, okay, this is what really matters. Four truths that John shares with his followers and then with us through God's word. Four truths we must remember that will produce in us true humility. The first truth is this. You are not the source. In other words, it's all from God. What you have has been given to you by God. It doesn't come from you. It comes from him. You are not the source of what you have. Verse 27 John answered. So they bring this problem to him. John answers. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So the first piece to our equation of humility is to recognize that all that we have comes from God. He is the one who gives us all of this in the first place. So if you're tempted to boast about what you have, maybe your life's going well, you have a lot, and so you say, oh, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Be careful that that does not lead you to boasting in what you have as if you were the one to bring it about. Do not believe the lie that what you have is because you did something or because you got lucky, but because God has given it to you. 
That's why you have what you do. And don't be tempted to despair then when you see somebody else has more. Because guess what? God's the one who gave it to them too. So John has a remarkable trust in God's sovereign decisions. And he could trust that God was still doing something. Even when God was moving the people from this over to this. When John was saying, okay, when God was saying, John, I'm going to take some of your people here and I'm going to bring them over here. John trusted God's the one who's doing that. And when John sees, hey, this, this other guy has more evident gifts than I do in ministry, John says, God's the one who gave it to him, not, not, not me. It frees him from the temptation to have to try to compete with these other people in ministry. It is a test often of how much you believe in God's sovereignty when these, thing, when these matters arise in our lives. So, if God gives more people to that church and more, gifts to that, more, more people to that ministry, more gifts to that pastor than he has given to you, do you still trust him? If God gives that competing business across town more resources than he has given to yours, do you still trust him? If God gives more success to your coworker than he has given to you, do you still trust him? If God has given more skills and abilities to someone else than he has to you, do you still trust him? See, part of this humility that John the Baptist exhibits is built upon a trust in God's sovereign purposes that the Lord God is the one who gives these gifts to his people and the Lord does not make mistakes. And it doesn't mean that you just sit back and do nothing. You know, what John didn't do is say, all right, well, then I'm not baptizing anyone anymore if I can't have this big, you know, John, John kept serving. He kept using the gifts that God had given to him. And John said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to keep serving. I'm going to keep using what God has given to me, and I'm going to leave the results to God. And if God wants to use someone else in a more powerful way to do this and wants wants to give this person more success and this person more gifts, then I'm going to trust that God's doing what he is doing, and I believe that it's good. Do you trust in God's sovereign purposes? Do you believe that you are not the source of what you have, but it's all been given to you by God? That's the first step in this kind of humility. The second step comes in here. John also has another truth that he has come to learn very deep, and it's this, that he is not the Christ. We've seen him say that before, he is not the Christ, but we see it show up again. And what it reminds us is that you are not the Savior. You are not the source of what you have, and neither are you the Savior. John says this in verse 28, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Chapter one, he confessed, I'm not the Christ. That was his confession of faith. I'm not that guy. And now he brings it up again. And he's basically saying to them, hey, hey, you guys remember when you heard me say, I'm not the Christ? I really meant that. I'm not him. I'm not as important as you think I am. It's about him, not me. This is John's confession of faith. And I think it's a good model for us to follow. We are not the Messiah. And you say, well, of course, okay, I don't pretend to be Jesus. But that doesn't mean it would have been easy for John to sit back and watch someone else having a thriving ministry right across the river from him. So, you know, if you're, if you're a musician and you're very talented musically, you might readily confess, hey, guess what? I am not as talented as Taylor Swift is. But that does not mean that when you're trying to do your own thing here and she brings her heiress tour right across the street from you, that you're like, okay, come on. Like the biggest spectacle in the world when it comes to music is now right across the street from me. Couldn't you do that somewhere else? See, if I'm John the Baptist, I'm thinking, okay, wait a second. You know, Jesus, Israel's a big country. 
You couldn't have picked somewhere else to do this? Right across the river from me, that's where you're, that's where you're deciding to take up this ministry? I mean, Jesus, wouldn't it be more effective if we kind of divided and conquered? I've got this thriving ministry here, and couldn't you go somewhere else? And now we kind of split this. And we, so, so even though you believe I'm not the Christ, you still have, have to wrestle with this and say, okay, you know what? This doesn't really make sense to me. I, I don't get why this is happening. But John comes back and he says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not him. If he's getting more attention than me, that's okay. It's okay. No matter what, it's hard for us to step aside and let someone else take over, no matter who it is. And perhaps this might be especially applicable to those of you who are older. I'll let you define who that is. But some of you, you've worked for a long time and are approaching retirement. And now you're realizing that maybe you were not irreplaceable to that business that you thought you were. Parents, maybe uh, you've parented your kids for a few decades and they're getting ready to leave the house and now you're realizing, wait a second, they don't depend upon me in the same way they did 10 years ago. And it seems like everything in your life now is, is changing. And you thought you were so central, you were so pivotal at both at work and at home, and now you're realizing that's, that's changing. And maybe I'm less so than I once was. Kent Hughes writes this, no matter who we are, no matter how much success we are having, sooner or later, our lives or our ministries will be eclipsed. The most successful, competent, or famous will one day be asked to take a lesser role. And we all need to know how to react at such a time. See, this is what happened with John the Baptist. He's been running this thriving ministry, thinking it's going great, and now here comes this young hotshot preacher who's taking the attention away from him. And sooner or later, it happens to every single one of us, where sooner or later, the gifts begin to fade, or someone else arises and says, okay, they're, they're more evidently skilled than I am, or uh, for whatever reason, you begin to realize, maybe this thing does not revolve around me. You're not gonna fix all the world's problems. You're not gonna be the one who's indispensable. You're not gonna be the one that saves your kids. And that, rather than being defeating, is actually the most freeing truth you could learn. So rather than causing you to check out and say, well, this doesn't matter then, I'm not gonna keep going, it actually drives you, I'm gonna use the gifts that God has given me and I'm gonna trust that he's gonna use them for his purposes and for his glory. I'm gonna keep serving, I'm gonna keep faithfully laboring on and I'm gonna trust what God is doing. I'm gonna trust him to bring the results and I can rest that with him. John knows he is not the source of what he has and John also knows he is not the savior. And he knows a third truth, that he is not the star. He is not the star even of his own life, and neither are you. You are not the star. You're not the main point. The world does not revolve around you. We see this in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John uses the illustration of a wedding. And he says, you know, the friend of the bridegroom, that's what we would call today uh, the best man. Um, you know, I've, I've been the best man in a, in a few different weddings. Let me tell you, it's actually a rather simple task. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it, but uh, as long as you don't screw up a few crucial things, you're going to be okay, right? Um, when the bride is walking down the aisle, don't step in and take her for yourself. Um, when they're taking pictures, 
don't pretend like you're the central focus of the pictures, but let them do their thing. Uh, when the dancing's happening, uh, when you're the first dance or whatever, um, now is not your time to get up and show off all your dance moves. And that was not a problem for me. Uh, number four, when they're getting ready to leave on their honeymoon, you're not going with them. If you get all that figured out, guess what? You're a great best man, because guess what? The point of being the best man is to say it's all about them. And when, and when, they, are, when they are happy, when, they, when, when their joy is complete, then so is mine. That's the point. The point is to say, I'm not the point. It's about them. And John says, that's my role that I have to play with my life. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Look to him. Friends, you are not the star even of your own life. So if the previous point could be applied to those who are older, maybe this one could be particularly applied to those who are younger. There's probably a lot more people saying, yes, that's me. But uh, the world is ahead of you when you're younger. There's so much that you could do. And the message that we are told all over the place is that what matters most is that you're true to yourself. Follow your heart. Let your heart guide you. We have been told from a young age, every one of us, we've been told from a young age that your heart is the ultimate compass and you are the center of your own reality. So follow your heart, follow your dreams, wherever those might lead you. Your life is about you. Don't let other people tell you what you can or can't do. Don't let other people suppress the desires that feel so right and instinctual within you. Keep going. And see, here we begin to see the modern idea of humility. See, the modern idea of humility plays out like this. Hey, you know what? Humility is not thinking about what other people think of you, but just thinking about yourself. And we wouldn't phrase it that way, but it would say, you know, I want, I want to drown out all the other noise because I don't want to compare myself and compete with them. I don't want to, I don't want to go that way. So what, what guides me then? Myself, my own heart. But do you see how the modern definition of humility then is basically just look at yourself? And the Bible would tell you that if that's the case, you will never truly be humble. Humility never comes by looking at yourself. Because either you'll say, look how great I'm doing, I must be awesome, and boast about it. Or you'll say, look how bad I'm doing, and your pride will instead look like despair. But the Bible comes along and says, your identity is not found by looking to others, nor is it found by looking within. It is found by looking to Christ. All this world's definition of humility, saying, don't worry what they're saying, follow your heart. All it can create are self-centered individualists who just need to express the innermost desires and thoughts in order to really find fulfillment. See, we're told to ignore what others think and just to follow your own heart. And the Bible comes along and says, no, no, true humility comes by looking away from yourself and looking instead to Jesus Christ. He is the point of your life. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus and when that happens, you can actually celebrate what other people have success. Just like the best man can celebrate when the bride and the groom are, uh, are filled with joy, so too can we celebrate when other people are having success as well. You know, for a while, when I was growing up, I thought the, uh, you know, the verse, um, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I thought the hard part about that verse was weeping with those who weep. That's the easy part. The hard part is rejoicing when other people are rejoicing. Rejoicing when other people are having success. Rejoicing when other people are doing better than you are. And still to come along and celebrate with them? That takes this kind of humility that says, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And when that happens, you are freed up to come alongside other people and to celebrate what God is doing in their lives 
as well. Because see, all of this leads us to the fourth truth that John stakes his life upon. Because the driving aim of our lives is not asking, what's going to make me look great? The driving aim of our lives is asking, what's going to make Jesus look great? May he get the glory, not me. And so John comes along with the most famous words he ever uttered in verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John knows something very important. And now we come to the the essence that lies behind true humility. And it says, you are not the son of God. You are not the source of what you have. You are not the savior of those around you. You are not even the star of your own life. And you are not the son of God. But we do know the one who is. Jesus the Christ. John says, he must increase. I must decrease. The secret to true humility is not found by by trying harder to be humble. It's not found even by just thinking, well, I'm just going to think worse of myself. No, the true secret to humility is thinking less about yourself in the first place and looking to Jesus, thinking about him. So long as we remain focused on ourselves, no matter what the reason is, we will never be truly humble. And that can be a real danger for our social media age. Social media, by its very nature, causes us to look at self. See, sometimes we treat technology as all neutral. It's not. It doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's not neutral. It's shaping and forming you in a particular way. And we would do well to know what that is. One of our Wednesday night electives this summer is about that, by the way. Um, but let's just consider briefly three, three, three main elements of uh, this technology. TV, video games, social media. Now, this is going to be an overgeneralization, but let's just look at the, the progress of technology in that. TV, what's the focus? I'm looking at someone else on the screen and looking in on their, on their life. Video games, now I get to put myself in their shoes. Social media, now I'm the one on stage other people are looking at. Now I have a platform readily available to me where people are going to listen to what I think about anything I want to share. It's readily available to me. And I don't mean that social media is all bad. I'm on social media. It doesn't mean that you have to just say, I'm never going to use it again. But it does mean we have to realize that in our digital age of social media, it, it makes it a lot harder to decenter ourselves from our own lives and say, I'm not on the stage. Jesus is. Everyone's looking at me saying, what do you, what do you have to say about this? Well, well I, I, I'm not on the stage. I, Jesus is there. Let me, let me point you to him. That's what John the Baptist is doing. So what's the solution to this? Well, here's the most important one. Spend your time looking to Jesus instead of yourself. Spend more time looking at him than you look at yourself. I think Robert Murray McShane was right when he famously said this, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. See, if all that you focus on in this statement is I must decrease, that's not actually going to make you humble. It will just make your pride look more like despairing than it will like boasting. But if your focus is on, he must increase, then the I must decrease comes right along with it. If he becomes greater, I'm going to fade into the background. And that's, that's best. John had a clear understanding of who Jesus was. And when John saw who Jesus was, John realized, I'm not as big of a deal as I thought I was. Here's what Jim Hamilton writes, says this, one reason that we are not humble is that we have not experienced true greatness. We have not encountered majesty. So in our ignorance and our lack of experience, we begin to think that we are grander and greater than we really are. And we begin to overestimate our own importance. 
What he's saying is this, part of the reason we're not humble is because we haven't actually encountered what true greatness looks like. When you stand in the presence of true greatness and true majesty, your boasting looks silly by comparison. If I were to go up and, you know, Patrick Mahomes is standing here, and I go up to Patrick Mahomes and say, hey, you know what, back when I was in high school, I had some great stories to tell you. I mean, that would look absurd. You have the best football player on the planet, and I'm talking about, oh, yeah, I, I, I made this great play once. It just, it looks silly. When we come in the context of true greatness, we rightly see where we fall in comparison. John says, when you look at Jesus, when he must increase, you see, okay, you know what, I fall a little short of that. And so that's why in verses 31 through 36, we see who this Jesus is. We're reminded of who he is. There are at least four reminders of how Jesus is greater than we are. The first one, he's, he has a greater home than we have. See this in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. See, Jesus comes from heaven. We don't. We speak in earthly ways and do earthly things because earth is our home. Jesus was born on earth, but he is not, the earth is not his home. Heaven is. He has a greater home than we have. He also has greater words than we have, because he speaks what is true. Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. See, Jesus is sent by God, so he speaks what is true. And as proof, God gives him his spirit without measure. Elisha received a double portion of God's spirit, but Jesus receives the spirit without measure. He speaks what is true. You can trust him when he says this. And, and as, as a side note, why would John the Baptist get uh, disillusioned when people don't respond to the truth he's preaching when they didn't respond to the truth Jesus was preaching? Why would John get troubled by people who kind of deserted him in ministry when people deserted Jesus in ministry? John knows Jesus is greater than I am. He has a greater home and he has greater words than I speak. And he also has greater possessions than I have. Verse 35, the father loves the son and he has given all things into his hand. So whatever it is that you have, I will guarantee you this, you do not have everything. You don't have all things. And in fact, the more that you have, probably the less satisfied you are because the more you're aware of the things that you don't have. Jesus does not have that problem. He has all things. Everything was made by him. Everything being sustained by him. Everything given to him as his inheritance for eternity. So you might have some money. Maybe you even have some more money than most people around you doesn't even come close to the wealth that Jesus has. In fact, that money that you have is his. He has just lent it to you, and he will demand an account for how you use it one day. He has greater possessions than any of us can imagine. And he also has, the fourth way he's greater, he also has greater love than we could ever fathom. Verse 35, again, the father loves the son. For all of eternity, the father has been lavishing his love upon his son. The son who became incarnate and dwelt among us. That, that son, the father, has been loving him for eternity. And all human love is a faint imitation of that love. So whether it's the love of a parent or a spouse or a child or a friend, it is nothing compared to the love that the father has for his son. Doesn't, doesn't measure up. And yet here is the stunningly glorious reality that comes through all of this is that you can know that very same love. All human love pales in comparison to that, yes, but Jesus invites you into that very same love, that you could be loved by the Father in the way he has loved his son for eternity by being brought into his family. 
Yes, Jesus has a greater home than we do, but heaven can also be your home if you believe in him. Yes, Jesus speaks greater words than we do, but he gives us his words that we can know what is true and trust him. Yes, Jesus has greater possessions than you or I do, but he will lavish his inheritance upon his people for all eternity. And yes, he has greater love than we do, but he welcomes us into his family and we are adopted by the Father as sons and daughters of the King and we are given the same love for all of eternity that the Son of God has received. See, this is, what, this is where verse 36 drives us to. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What is life? It is to know Christ in that way. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friend, do you believe in Christ Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus as your Savior? Notice that here in our text, belief and obedience are used synonymously. If you believe in God, you have life. If you disobey God, you don't have life. It's not saying that you are saved by your obedience, but it is saying that true faith True faith is faith that trusts God enough to obey him. Trusts God enough to follow him. Trusts God enough to stake your life on what he says. Trusts God enough that he can call the shots for your life, not you. Trusts God enough that what he says is right and good for you, even if you don't see it right now. True faith that comes to him by faith alone, not by what we do, not by what we bring, but true faith that comes to him is a faith that steps out in obedience and follows him and trusts him. For all who do, for all who trust in him, he gives this very inheritance to us. See, John the Baptist uses an illustration of a wedding with the best man and the bride, the groom, and you know, all of scripture is really about a wedding. From beginning to end, from Old Testament and New, it's all about one main story, the story of the Son of God who would take on flesh as the person of Jesus and his beloved bride, the church. See, right now you play the part of the best man. You're pointing other people to Jesus, but you also play the part of the bride as a member of the body of Christ, his church. And together the church will be presented to Christ in splendor and in purity, cleansed from sin and presented to him whole. Remember the whole, the whole context of this passage is about purification. It's all about purification. Well, what, what happens is Jesus comes in, he cleanses his bride, washes her pure and spotless. That's what Ephesians tells us. Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. There is coming the day where Jesus will meet his bride, the church, at the altar and for all of eternity he will lavish his inheritance upon her when you trust in him, you are brought into that very same family. We have nothing in our own strength. We do not come to him in our own strength. We come empty-handed to the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross do I cling. I am not the source of what I have. All that I have has been given to me by God, so I praise him for it. I am not the savior. I am in need of saving myself. I was a sinner, impure and defiled filthy, in need of cleansing, and Jesus is the Savior for my soul. I am not the Messiah, but I have found the one who is. That's the cry of our hearts. And I'm not the main point of my life. My life exists to point other people to him. May Jesus increase, and as long as, as, as Jesus and his bride get together, then my joy is complete, and I'll fade into the background and take great joy in that. That's the point of my life. 
If my life could be used of the Lord to help other people come to him, that is a life well lived. That is true greatness. Modeled in John the Baptist, but also modeled by us. We're called to model that still today. A life that is willing to be less significant, less important, less being the star of the show, and more eager to say, let Jesus be made great, not me. See, Jesus is not impressed by political power or worldly wealth. He's not impressed by impeccable reputations or social media followings. He's not impressed by how much praise you and I get on a daily basis. He is impressed by people who echo the sentiment of John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. That is true greatness in the eyes of our Lord. And here's the paradox that comes with all that. Here's the irony that comes with all that. Is that when Jesus gets more glory, we get more joy. We spend our lives searching for joy and satisfaction in so many other places. And we tend to think that the way that's going to happen is by living for myself. If I live for myself, if I live to make me happy, if I live to make my own name great, I'm going to get joy in that. But the Bible comes along and says, actually, it's the opposite. When you stop living for yourself and start living for Christ, that's when joy comes. Here's what John says. Let's saw it in verse 29. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What does it look like to have complete joy? To have joy that isn't some half measure that doesn't kind of start and then stop. It doesn't fade away. What does it look like to have that kind of joy? See, the things of this world are like water that will satisfy you for a moment, but leave you thirsty again. But as we will see next week, Jesus promises that he offers living water. And if you come to him and drink of the living water, you will never thirst again. We just sang this earlier. Come, find what this world cannot offer. Come, find your joy here complete. Taste the living water. Never thirst again. Rest here in his wondrous peace. Do you believe that? That Jesus gives you complete joy when you live for him? See, the best things of the world don't satisfy. If you desire wealth the most, you're never going to have enough wealth to complete your joy in it. If you desire success the most, you will never actually have enough of it to complete your joy. If you desire romance the most, you'll never actually find it rich enough to complete your joy. If you desire praise the most, you'll never get enough of it to complete your joy. Every single day, we're all being told that there's, there's a million different options that if you come to this, it will make you satisfied and happy. So advertising's all built around. Hey, you know what? If you just buy this car, you'll be happy. Just have this romantic relationship, you'll be happy. You know, whatever the, the product is they're trying to sell you. Hey, if you have this new vacuum cleaner or whatever, whatever it is, then you'll be happy. It's trying to sell you all these things. Like that's where your joy is going to be found. But the things of this world will never satisfy. True joy, lasting joy, complete joy comes when you stop living for yourself and start living for Christ. That's the paradox of the Christian life. When you live your life for Jesus, when you say, I want him to become great, and you're willing to fade into the background, you find your joy is complete. When you say, you know, if Jesus gets more glory, I get more joy. If Jesus becomes greater, my joy becomes greater. I think Piper was right. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. To rephrase that, what he's saying is that God gets more glory when we take more joy in him. I think that's true. I think the flip side is also true. When we live for God's glory, we also get more joy. See, the human soul was never meant to seek ultimate, lasting satisfaction in the things of this world. It was never meant to find ultimate fulfillment by living for ourselves. 
But when you can truly, finally, from the heart, say with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease, then all of a sudden you've stumbled upon the only path that will really lead you to complete joy. All other paths will fail and they will fade eventually. Sooner or later they will fail. Seeking our own joy in the things of the world will ultimately lead to you receiving none of it in the end. But if you say, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm not going to seek my own pleasure and happiness above all else. I'm going to seek the Lord and may he become great. The paradox of the Christian life is that is when you find your joy complete. When his glory is our aim, we find more joy in him. And that is what a life of true greatness looks like. It's found in a life that can say with these words and model with the, with the life, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, may that be the cry of our hearts. May we echo the words that we see here in your holy word. May Jesus become great. Lord, this is hard. It does not come easily or naturally to us. It only comes by your spirit. But would you take our eyes off of ourselves and put them onto your son, Jesus? May you redirect our gaze, redirect our attention, redirect our efforts. And I pray that for all of us who throughout the course of this past week even have lived for ourselves, lived for our pride, lived, lived to make our own name great, Lord, would you just gently correct us in that? cast our gaze once more to your beloved son. May he captivate our attention. May he captivate our focus that he becomes greater and we are content to live for his glory. Lord, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, our savior and Lord. Amen.